Yeah. What I always used to do is I would take my thumb and I would just riffle through the pages of the Bible and keep track of the book on the top right. So you can do that. It's a and cheat then code. You learn the order too. And then you learn the order too. That's right. That's why we have the books of the Bible song. But 1 Peter chapter 1. We are starting a new series tonight. And this is a series that I'm actually really excited about. Um, it's a series through the book of 1 Peter. And you guys remember in our first Corinthians message, if you are a Christian, you are a missionary. So one of the things like a word that I threw around a whole bunch during that entire conversation was the word witness. And when I say the word witness, witness can include sharing the gospel with someone. In fact, witness typically and almost always does include sharing the gospel with someone, like actually saying it. But a witness is also how you live. It's what you do that demonstrates the gospel in your life. And it's a changed life that is part of your evangelism. So when I'm talking about witness, that's what I'm talking about. It's the overarching thing of living your life for the gospel. So 1 Peter is a book that's written about witnessing, about what does it mean to live like a Christian with everyone watching. And you can actually see that really early because he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And the dispersion, like exiles in the dispersion, you guys probably read that and you're like, what does that mean? I didn't know what that meant until like two years ago. <laughs> so dispersion. If you know the story of Stephen in the book of Acts, Stephen was a guy who shared the gospel in Jerusalem and he was stoned to death. And after that, persecution began in the church. So the dispersion is when a bunch of persecution was happening in Jerusalem, the church yeeted on out of there. All the Christians started spreading around to the areas around Israel, and that started like spreading the gospel internationally, because now you've got a bunch of Christians in all of these other places. So when you talk about dispersion, it's all of the Jerusalem church spread in the rest of the world, and they're being persecuted. So this is a letter written to a bunch of Christians to say, how do you live and function in a difficult world as Christians? And I'm excited about it. It's going to be really cool. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, he talks about what does it mean to be a Christian? Like, what is being a Christian? Or more specifically, how do you know if you're a Christian? And so before I continue on any of that, I want to ask you guys a question. Have any of you guys seen the movie Surf's Up? Hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. Surf's Up is such a good movie. My sister Julianne used to watch that movie on a loop. Every time she had free time, she would just watch the movie and then watch it again and then watch it again. She loved that movie. And for good reason, it's a pretty dope movie. For those of you who don't know, Surf's Up is a movie about penguins. The most interesting thing. But uh, it's a movie about penguins, and specifically, it's a movie about surfing penguins. And one penguin in particular named Cody, who's a penguin living in like Antarctica, I think it is, and then he gets picked up for this world surfing competition, and he goes to like Peng Pengu Island, I think it is? Pengu Island. And they're having this massive surfing competition, and it's an entire movie about how he goes from this like backwater get it? Backwater. So this backwater Antarctica surfer to almost winning this competition. And so in the movie Surf's Up, Cody makes friends with his like childhood hero, Big Z. And Big Z is at this point, this like old kind of chubby dude who's just, you know, he's a bit of a bum. And at a certain point in the movie, do you guys remember when Big Z gets the wood and he gives it to Cody and he says, make your surfboard? And he's like, you know, with the grain. He's showing how to make the surfboard with his little seashells. And does Cody the first time, does he actually like do the patient thing and make it properly? 
Nah, man, he hacks at it. He goes quick and he makes a quick dirty surfboard. And after he's done, what does Big Z do? He walks over to the surfboard, right? And he walks over to the surfboard with this big old rock and he sets the rock down and he climbs up on the rock and he's about to jump on the surfboard. And Cody's like, nah, man, don't break my board. So he grabs the surfboard and he's like, it'll work, it'll work. Because when you're surfing and you're standing on your surfboard, it needs to be able to take your weight, right? You don't want it snapping under you when you're trying to ride a wave. So Cody takes this surfboard and he jumps right on into the water and what happens? It snaps, it snaps right in half. Was that surfboard able to take his weight? No. So here's the thing. Could he have realized that earlier before he got into the water? Could he have tested it? Yeah, because after he does that, he makes another surfboard, right? And this time he does it right. And when Big Z comes over, he drops the rock down, he climbs onto the surfboard, and what happens? He starts jumping on it. And does the surfboard break? No, it bends, it shoots him right back up, and it's able to take his weight perfectly. And so why was he testing the surfboard? To see if it works. Because when Cody went into the water with the first one, it just snapped. It was too late to test it. But with this surfboard, even before he got into the water, he knew that the surfboard was going to be able to take his weight because he tested it first. And that's a bit like Christianity. Because every single one of us is eventually going to jump into the water. We're going to stand before God at the end of our lives, and he's going to say either, yes, you made it, or no, you didn't. Either, yes, you're getting into heaven, or no, you're going to hell. And the issue is, can we know what he's going to say at that moment before we get there? Because once Cody jumped into the water and snapped his surfboard, it was too late to test it. And when you stand before God, it is too late to know if you're saved. Because once you realize that you're not, you can't then do the right thing. And so we're going to talk about, can you know beforehand? Is there a way for us to know whether or not we're Christians here before we get to the point where it really matters? Is there a way that we can put a rock down, jump on our salvation, and test it? And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We are going to talk about how can you know if you're a Christian? How can you know if you are really saved? We're going to talk about God's work in salvation. So, before we can talk about testing our faith, there are some things about it that we kind of need to know. So I'm going to start, I'm going to read in verse 1, and before we even get to that, there's something else we're going to briefly touch on. But it says, Peter... An apostle of Jesus Christ. Like, we all know who Peter is. This is the home slice that walked on water. This is the guy that denied Jesus three times. This is the guy that Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. Peter is like the head of the apostles. He is the primary person among the apostles that was leading the church early on. And so Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So the first thing that I have to mention, we just saw the Trinity, right? We saw God the Father, we saw the Spirit, and we saw Jesus Christ. 
So a while back, I was talking to you guys about how Jesus is God, and I said, you know, it talks about that all over the place in the Bible, and just whenever we see it, I'm going to mention it. But we see that God, the Father, is God, and he's put on the same level as the Holy Spirit and Jesus. And this is claiming that Jesus is God, because, for example, if I say, in the name of God the Father, in the name of the Holy Spirit, and in the name of John Horning, what did I just do? Right? Exactly. That's called blasphemy. Because I just took myself and I put myself on the same level as God. But is anything on the same level as God? That's right. And so when you see Peter opening his letter and he says, Father, Spirit, Son. He's putting all three of them on the same level. And so sometimes when we talk about the Trinity, it's like, okay, yeah, God is three, God is one. Why do I care? Why does it actually matter? And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you just briefly, this is not the point of the message, but I want to include it briefly. I want to tell you two things that are really encouraging about the Trinity. First thing, have any of you guys read the Percy Jackson series? Hey, yeah, man. Dude, I just reread the Percy Jackson series a few months ago. It's fantastic. So in the Percy Jackson series, would you say that all of the different like Greek gods have good relationships with each other? No. Not even a little bit. They're fighting with each other. Ares steals, you know, Zeus's master bolt. Zeus and Poseidon are absolutely going at it. And what happens to the rest of the world as the result of the gods having, like, a prize match? Yes? Yeah, all sorts of weather is going on. Like, the world is suffering because the gods are going at it. And the thing that you think about is that when you look back on polytheistic systems, the gods were not unified in purpose. The gods were a lot of times enemies of each other. Two gods that might be on friendly terms today might be having a piffle tomorrow. And the thing about the Trinity that's super encouraging is that God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus the Son have never disagreed. They have never had a fight with each other. Right? They are one essence. They are unified in purpose. They are unified in everything they do. There is never a situation where Jesus is going to have your back, but the Father is going to want to get at you. That will never happen. And so one of the things that we get to know is like, oh man, okay, God is consistent. I don't have to be worried about one day two members of the Trinity going at it. It's one God. They are one essence. They never disagree. So that's one thing that I find really encouraging. But here's the other one. God is inherently relational. Let me ask you this. If you were the only person that existed, is it possible for you to love someone? If you are the only person, is it possible for you to love someone? I see you shaking your head. Who? God. What if God doesn't exist? What if you are the only thing that exists? Yourself. Okay, yourself, potentially. But in our 1 Corinthians 13 message, we said love is for... Let's see if you remember this. Others. Love is for others. So love is specifically when you're being self-sacrificial for something else, right? So if you were the only thing that exists, is it possible for you to love something? No. So God has never been, well, God, the Trinity, before they created anything, they were the only things that existed. But God the Father, Jesus the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have always existed in relationship with each other. That means that God is inherently loving. If you go and talk to a Muslim where they don't believe in the Trinity, 
they do not believe that God is inherently loving. They do not believe that God is inherently relational because he spent an eternity alone in their idea. But for us, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit have been interacting with and loving each other for an eternity. God is inherently relational. So those things are really encouraging to me. God is a God who knows how to love. He's been doing it a long time. And God is a God that I don't have to worry about two members of the Trinity going at it because they are one essence. So that's why it matters. Sometimes it's hard to wrap your head around it, but those are two of the reasons it matters. So that, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about tonight, but I figured that we should mention it because it's there. But now we're going to get into the meat and potatoes of specifically what we're talking about. We're going to read verses 3 and 4. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And the first thing that we're going to learn is that you cannot take credit for your salvation. So let me just read that. First of all, in verse 2, it says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, who knows what foreknowledge means? It's a pretty big word. What does foreknowledge mean? Yep. You knew it beforehand. That's exactly right. So when it says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, that means that God knew who he was going to save before any of us were born. He knew that you were going to become a Christian before you became a Christian. He had decided that beforehand. But it's not just that he knew it. Like, there's times that you know something's going to happen, even if you're not involved in it. It's not that God just knew, because if you read in verse 3, it says that he caused us to be born again to a living hope. So it's God who gives you your salvation. And so in Ephesians chapter 1, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So when we say that God knew beforehand... What I'm saying is that before the world ever existed, before Adam and Eve walked on the earth, before the stars had light, before the sun was shining, God already knew, I'm going to save this person. God already knew he was going to save John Horning. God already knew he was going to save Ella Ram. He already knew he was going to save Charlie. Anyone who is a Christian, if you are a Christian, God knew from the foundation of the world that you would be saved, and he chose to save you. So, again, that means that you can't take credit for it. Like, I'm going to give you guys, this is another one of those things where, like the Trinity, when we talk about predestination, it can be hard. It can be like, okay, well, why do I care? I'm going to give you some applications. I'm going to ask you, so before the world existed, before anything existed, did you do anything to impress God? Maybe you showed him a really cool magic trick, or maybe you were really smart and did a lot of righteous deeds, you know, thousands and thousands of years before you existed. I see a bunch of shaking heads. No, we did not. So one of the things that's important is that you can't take credit for your salvation, and I'm going to give you an example. I want you to imagine a girl in elementary school Let's say that her name's Tiffany. I'm just pulling that out of the air. Let's say that there's a girl named Tiffany in elementary school. 
And her mom picks out all of her outfits, every single one of them. Her mom buys her clothes, she puts them out in the morning, and she is the one who helps her daughter get dressed and just look spiffy. And I mean, let's say that Tiffany's mom has got a pretty good sense of style. So Tiffany goes to school and everyone's like, man, Tiffany knows how to dress. She looks great. <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. Could you imagine for a moment if Tiffany started like receiving all these compliments and she started thinking, man, I got good style. And let's say that like one day Tiffany goes home and she walks up to her mom and she's like, man, mom, I really know how to dress myself. I really know how to pick out clothes. I really got a good sense of style. In fact, oh, I think I might have as good a much of style as you've got. Would that make sense? <laughs> no, because who's picking out Tiffany's clothes? Is it Tiffany? It's her mom. Does Tiffany have any choice in the matter? Does she have anything to do with her rocking dresses or whatever when she's going to school? No, she's got nothing to do with it. So can Tiffany take credit? So instead of bragging to Tiffany's mom who actually did the work, what might Tiffany do? Say thank you. That's right. And if you and I didn't do anything to become Christians, are we going to go and brag to God about how we got ourselves into heaven? No. It had nothing to do with me that God chose me. He did that for his own reasons. And so when I go to heaven, I'm not going to be surrounded by a bunch of people bragging about, well, I was martyred in the reign of Nero. Well, let me tell you, I was giving alms to so many people. Well, let me tell you, Mother Teresa ain't got nothing on my charity. Like, are we going to be listening to person after person after person bragging about how God's so lucky that they're in the pearly gates? No. When you go to heaven, there is only one human in heaven that has any right to be there. And it's the God-man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who earned his way in. None of us did. And so when we go up there, we're not going to be talking about how cool we are. We're going to be talking and saying, Jesus, thank you for all that you did to let me come here. Because I don't deserve it. So that's the first thing. And that's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So it's important for us to recognize that we cannot take credit for our salvation. God gave that to us. So that's the first thing that you need to understand. But the second thing you need to understand is that you cannot lose your salvation. And this one's, again, pretty easy. Before God saved you, he looked at your life and he knew everything you were going to do from the day you were born to the day you died. And he said, that one's mine. And if God chose to save you from before the world even existed, there is nothing that you can do that God didn't already know about. There is nothing that you can do that would cause you to lose your salvation because God gave it to you. If you read, I'm going to read this section again, and I'm going to add verse 4 to it. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Verse 5, Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I'm going to read again. It says that God, who are being, 
who by God's power are being guarded. Have you guys ever seen one of those movies where like maybe the bad guy, he wants to get to a pearl or something, or he's trying to steal some treasure, or he's trying to kidnap someone. And then the, the good guy, the hero, he walks on in with a chest three times the size of his body, and he says, if you want to get to that person, you're going to have to go through me. Like, have you guys ever seen those movies or that happen in TV shows when someone says, if you want this, you've got to go through me first? So God himself is saying that by his power, he's guarding your salvation. That in your entire life, when you become a Christian, God himself saunters on in, he sticks his foot on the ground, and he says, if you want to get to this person, you're going to have to go through me. And let me ask you, is anything scarier than God? Is anything more powerful than God? Is there anything that when God is holding on to it, something else can take it away from him? God does what he wants. God saves who he wants. And God is powerful enough to do that. And Paul, he lays this out in Romans chapter 8, because Romans chapter 8 is an entire chapter of Paul just saying, you can't lose your salvation. Oh, and in case you were wondering, you can't lose your salvation. By the way, you can't lose your salvation. (laughs) And at the end of it, he says, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is there anything that when God says, if you want him, you're going to have to go through me, that can walk on up and push him aside? No. And when God gives you salvation and says, you will make it to the end, you will make it to the end. Because nothing can stop God. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, it says, In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. When you become a Christian, the instant that you become a Christian, God himself, the Holy Spirit, is living in you. It's like, imagine a door. Have you ever seen a door with like a bunch of locks on it? Imagine a door, and just from top to bottom, there is lock after lock after lock after lock after lock. That's your salvation. That door has been sealed on all ends, and it will not open. Your life has been sealed by God himself you cannot lose your salvation. If you are a Christian, you are a Christian, and you will be going to heaven. Which, think about how important that is. Imagine if that wasn't the case. Imagine for a moment that I could say, I'm a Christian right now. I can be completely sure that right now I am a Christian, but that doesn't mean that I'll still be a Christian in five years. You know, if I died today, I'd go to heaven, but in five years, maybe, I don't know. Like, what are you supposed to do with that? Nothing good. But you don't have to be in that situation. If you are a Christian at any point, now in the past period, you will go to heaven. And there is nothing that can change that. Otherwise, God is either a liar or God is a weakling. And neither of those are the case. God is a God who keeps his promises and God is a God who is strong enough to keep his promises. 
So that's what we've talked about. We now know that you can't take credit for your salvation, that salvation is something God gives you and that you can't lose it once you have it. But even if you know that, it's like, okay then, well, but how do I know if I'm really saved? You know, the question isn't, can I lose my salvation? The question is, am I a Christian right now? How am I supposed to know? Because again, the moment that you stand before God, it's too late. Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons and perform miracles in your name? And I will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. There are people who will stand before God thinking they're Christians and then will be sent to hell. So how do you know? And this, this is where we get to the best part. You can face your trials in hope. What is the answer to how you can know that you're a Christian? It's what you do in your trials. I'm going to read the verses, and then we're going to talk about it a bit. But verses 6 through 9. In this you rejoice. In what you rejoice? He's referring to the last thing. He's referring to your salvation, the security of it. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so when he says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, Let's go right back to the beginning. When Big Z was jumping on that surfboard, what was he doing? Testing. He was testing it. He needed to make sure that when he got into the water, it wasn't going to snap. And so he tested it beforehand. And so, was he making the surfboard strong? Is it that the surfboard was weak, but by jumping on it, it was magically turning into a steel bar? Is that what it was? Was the act of jumping on it making it stronger? Someone say no. <laughs> that is correct. The answer is no. The surfboard wasn't getting stronger, but the characteristic that was already there was being revealed. You know, on Sunday, we talked about a litmus test. Who knows what a litmus test is or pH strip? So when you dump that pH strip into a thing of water or a thing of like stomach acid, is the strip itself changing the solution? No. What's the strip doing? It's testing it. The strip is telling you what's already there. And so when we talk about trials testing your faith, the trials and your response tell you whether or not you're a Christian. I'm going to read you guys another, you know, another set of verses that's very similar to this. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So if you're a Christian and you're tested and you go through difficult times in your life, maybe you get sick or a family member dies or your car breaks down or you lose your job, all things that are very applicable, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> so regardless of what you go through, when a pet dies, when you break your arm, when you fail a class, when you go through difficult things, how do you respond? What do you do? That's your opportunity to look into your heart and think, okay, am I a Christian? Because if you are a Christian, the result of difficulty is that you get stronger. Your faith in God doesn't get weaker, it gets stronger. 
And if you're not a Christian, then when you go through difficulties, your faith gets weaker. There are people who they go through hard times and they leave the church. When Jesus talks about the different kinds of soils, he said that there's a soil that springs up quickly, but as it faces the challenges of this life, it withers and dies. Hebrew said, uh, sorry, First John says that there are those who go out from us because they were never of us. And if you, when you face challenges, you wither away, that doesn't mean you lost your salvation. That means you were never a Christian to start with. But if you are a Christian, James says, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, right? Now, most people, when they go through hard times, they're not like, oh man, I was waiting for this. I'm so excited that my arm broke in half. Boy, am I glad that my dog died, and oh man, I needed my car to break down. Boy, am I glad about that. They don't walk into class one day when a rumor has been going around about how they, I don't know, do something embarrassing. Eat dog poop? I'm just going to throw that one out there. Yeah, there's a rumor that that's their favorite dessert. They don't walk into that room and they think to themselves, oh yeah, I needed that one spread around. Perfect. Like, none of that makes sense. But for a Christian, when you go through hard times, there are two reasons that you can be really excited about that. For a Christian, when you go through hard times, when you are going through trials, it's like going to the gym. When you go to the gym and you're pumping iron, it's hard, it hurts a little bit at the time, but the result is that your biceps get bigger. (laughs) But you know, we all understand the concept that you go through some pain, but you get a lot of pay for it. And that's what it's like for a Christian. When you go through trials and you're having hard times, that's God strengthening you. And so even though the trial itself isn't enjoyable, you can look at it and be like, okay, I'm getting stronger right now. This is good. But there's another thing even better than that. Because again, there are so many people who look at their life and they're like, I don't know if I'm a Christian. How am I supposed to be sure about that? How can I know when I stand before God that I'm safe? And trials are the answer. Because if you go through your life and you don't have experience any trials, you don't get to see that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, you can't be sure. So when I experience trials, when you guys experience trials, and you look at how you went through it, and you're like, I got stronger through that. I started to love Jesus more because of that. That shows you that you're a Christian. Because Paul sa- uh, sorry, Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. When you go through hard times and you love God more as a result, then that is what gives you confidence that when you stand before God at the end, your faith was real. That's the way that you can be big Z with the big rock jumping onto the surfboard and treating it like a trampoline. That's how you test your faith before getting it in the water. Well, how do I respond when I go through hard times? Do I love God more or do I get angry at him? And so, that's 1 Peter chapter 1. How can I know I'm a Christian? So what do you do if you look at your life and you're like, okay, I'm not a Christian? The reason that there are tests is so that you can see the results. There are people that will look at this and they'll throw their hands up and they'll say, well, God's already decided. And that's the wrong answer. I'm going to read you something from Isaiah chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. And this is God talking to Israel. He says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. 
If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And this is God's attitude with us. God offers salvation through Jesus Christ to every single person. And it's your decision whether or not you accept it. And so when you refuse to accept it, you don't get to say, oh, God, he already chose. No. There is not a single person in hell that didn't decide to be there. And that's not the most popular truth, but there is not a single person in hell that did not decide to be there. And there is not a single person in heaven that deserved to be there. Every single person has the opportunity to accept the gift that God gives. And if you test your life and you see that you're not a Christian, the response is to become a Christian. Right now, you've got time. But once you go into the water, it's too late to test. And so with that, let's bow our heads. We'll pray it out. We'll have a bit of time for small groups. Lord, thank you that you give us salvation. Thank you that salvation is not something that we are able to remove, that, we aren't, that salvation is not something that we can lose, but that, Lord, your character and your strength are the things that guarantee that if we are saved, we will make it to the end. Lord, if we could lose our salvation, we would. But, Lord, you keep us and you hold us and you take care of us and you bring us to the end. Lord, thank you that you give us a way to discern whether or not we are Christians. I pray that you would help each of us to look at our lives with fear and trembling and to think, am I really a Christian? Am I saved? Lord, I, help, I pray that you would help us to accept the gospel while there is still time and that we would learn in First Peter about how to live that gospel out and to call other people to the gift that you offer. And I pray that thing, those things in the name of our King Jesus Christ. Amen.